Hello, and welcome to another episode of Constructing Success, which is a sales, lifestyle, and performance hack podcast. Today, I have an incredible guest that I'm very fortunate to have on the show. You may know him from Cairo TV or Fox News. You may have seen him covering the Mariners. You may have seen him flying around in Blue Angels. But today with me, I have Bill Wixie, who has started his career as a news anchor back in 1998. And he has worked his way from covering stories around the world as far as Sri Lanka, which he'll get into, and has won two Emmy Awards for journalism. So needless to say, I'm incredibly excited and humbled to have you on my show. Bill, welcome to Constructing Success. Excuse me, Constructing Success. You're killing it. Thanks, Thank Derek. <laughs> Appreciate it, bud. So having you here um, as we go through these shows and with my guests, I want to uncover your history. We want to talk about the accolades. We want to talk about the great things that have happened. And then I want to work backwards. And I want to work backwards and figure out what it took to get where you are now. Some of the obstacles that got in your way and when those obstacles came how did you continue to push forward um we talked about this briefly we touched on it briefly not everybody has the tenacity to do what you've done to overcome what overcome what you've overcome and just from being around you to carry yourself in such a cool easygoing manner with an outlook on life that at least from the outside seems to be happy-go-lucky at nearly all times. So touching on those things, um, if you don't mind, can we start with what made you get into journalism? Like high school, you turn 18, maybe you're 16, maybe before, what makes you go that direction? That's a great question. Um, I think, you know, so many kids and I've, I've raised two now raising, um, like for, for me, it was one of those, uh, middle school aptitude tests where like, do you remember when they, they used to say, you know, what are you into? What are you interested in? Yes. And, um, you know, and I remember I filled the thing out and it came back as a radio DJ would be like one of the, the top things for me. And, and I, I remember like in what, a, like eighth grade, like thinking, yeah, that would be a really cool job, you know, <laughs> like to be a radio DJ. Cause I was, you know, into music and into being a ham and, you know, that sort of thing, like that, that would be a pretty cool job. But in the end, like, I was a huge sports nerd and I just thought, you know, to, you know, I was a season ticket holder for everything in the Seattle area. Like my dad and I had season tickets to the Husky Seahawks Mariners, which was a sentence you had to serve like in the seventies and eighties, um, Sonics, uh, you know, Sounders, whatever like we we had you know like i i spent more time in the kingdom than any kid should have been allowed and like 
I, I would see the reporters on the field, you know, like they would walk through the tunnel where the players were and they were really up close. And I thought to myself, like, that would be a cool job. Like if I had to go and do something every day, like that would be pretty cool to, like, to try to understand, you know, how these players operate and, you know, how teams operate and stuff like that. And that was my first inkling that that was something I really wanted to do. Um, and then all through high school, I kind of had that in mind, like that was something I, I wanted to, to be a part of, like even when I was given an opportunity to do PA at the high school football games, like I jumped at it, mm -hmm. something like that. So that, that was, that was the first thing. And I, I never deviated too far from that. Like I, I always wanted to get into broadcasting. Did you, so I, you played sports as well, right? Yeah. Not, not as well as you would need to, to, <laughs> you know, like, go professional or whatever, but I did play some college baseball and I, you know, I just, I knew I wasn't good enough to, you know, make a career at it, but, you know, being around it, like seemed interesting to me. And, and what's become even more interesting to me is to understand how winning teams operate. Like there's a huge difference between a team that's going out and competing and a team that goes out and wins. Mm -hmm. And and I've been really lucky to be around some organizations that have been incredibly successful. And it always fascinates me to find out like what that magic elixir is, you know, that, that gets, you know, great performances out of people and, and that winning culture that you cultivate in a locker room, you know. Have you uh, have you gotten a chance to sit in on any of the <clears throat> formulas, potions, or elixirs that have helped change teams? Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of it, like Pete Carroll would be a good example, like buy-in, mm -hmm. like buying in, like every time um, the players walk out of the locker room at the VMAC, at the training facility, or at, at the stadium, um, there's a sign that says, I'm in. Mm -hmm. And he's had that from day one and the players hit that, you know, mm -hmm. like I'm in, you know, uh, and that was the most important thing for Pete. Uh, and I don't know if you remember, but when Pete Carroll came to Seattle, there was a, you know, it was a controversial hire. Mm -hmm. Like nobody thought that this, you know, yes, he had some success at UC USC, but when he comes to Seattle, like, are you going to get buy-in like that from NFL players? And people were like, there's no way, no way it's going to work. You look at, you know, his, his career in New York and, and you think, nah, you know, maybe it'll work. But in Seattle, he had a lot of young players, a lot of guys that had chips on their shoulder guys. And, and to this day, like every guy on that roster in some way has a story to tell, like they, they've overcome something. You know, there's been some adversity in their life that they've dealt with. And um, and and he looks for those kind of players that they have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. And so um, I feel like buy in is is the biggest thing. You know, if you buy in to the greater good, the team comes together as a whole. Mm -hmm. And that way you get cohesiveness in the locker room 
And, and that's, and that's huge. And I've seen that over and over and over in, in my time, you know, in Green Bay covering the Packers or in Arkansas covering the University of Arkansas Razorback basketball team, uh, when they, you know, had great success in the nineties, you know, I was right in the middle of that. And I, and, and that was, um, you know, the quintessential aspect of all of those teams is, is buy-in. Yeah, so buy-in, and I want to cover uh, Arkansas and Green Bay, but when you're saying buy-in, that's a huge piece of it. But you also touched on um, players that have had some sort of adversity or some sort of chip on their shoulder, but they're still there. And I'm not a sports psychologist, and I'm just shooting from the hip here, but what I would equate that to is grit. And grit is what is going to make you show up no matter what happens, you keep fighting, you keep pushing. And when you get that buy-in from a team that every player has its own chip on its shoulder, every player has bought into the program, every player has grit, and now it's it's bigger than ourselves. We're a part yeah. of a team. And I'm going to put yeah. the guy on my right on my shoulder. I'm going to put the guy on my left on my shoulder. And I know that if I fall, they're going to pick me up. That once again, I don't know, but that's where I think it comes from. And mm -hmm. I hope that I'm not wrong here. This is just kind of connecting. I didn't, I didn't plan on it going this direction. Uh, but do you recall, I know he's spoken to other sports teams, but I believe he spoke to the Seahawks before they won the Super Bowl. Um, there is an author and he focuses on um, stoicism, Ryan Holiday. Have you ever heard of him? Or did, no, does that I'm ring a bell? Really which is the timing on this. I'm, I'm looking at the Moore theater right here and he's speaking there tonight. I'm going to see him, but I believe the Seahawks. Oh, really? Yeah. I believe the Seahawks cool. had brought him in before that Super Bowl year. If I'm wrong, I apologize to the listeners, but I do believe that that was part of the, the formula that, that helped him. Um, and, and actually, so going from there, and I want to keep this on your story, but you bringing up that, that eighth grade aptitude test Mine was, um, I believe that mine was something with radio because I think it gave you a few options, but it said like, here's your number one, here's your number right. two, here's number three. Exactly. My, my number one was a, um, a stunt actor. Like that, that's just what it recommended. That's what it recommended for me. I didn't go that way, but I was like, okay, oh, school's not really working out for me. Like I could, I could just tell, I could me tell, yeah, I could tell at that time. I was like, okay, that was, that was a little bit unusual. Um, and, and you said, so you played in college a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was Where did a you catcher. Play? Yeah. I was a catcher baseball player. I grew up playing hockey and baseball. I'd play hockey in the winter and then uh, baseball in the summertime. And um, the hockey thing was you know, very challenging. And when I got to my sophomore year in high school, my um, uh, second year of Bantam, I stopped playing uh, hockey. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I started kind of focusing on baseball. And I, I wasn't like, you know, supremely talented or anything, but I really worked at it. And um, I, I, even my sophomore year in high school, because back then we only had three years of high school, sophomore, junior, senior, and um, I got cut from the baseball team. I didn't even make JV my, my sophomore year. And I worked and worked and worked. I spent so much time in the batting cages and, and just like really tried to figure out how I was going to make that team because it was a really good team. We finished third in state my senior year. Um, 
And I, I was able to, you know, figure that one out. And I wasn't any sort of a high school baseball player. I mean, I was, I was pretty much a bench sitter, but I was still able to go to college like, and, and, and do that only because I, you know, be, because I wanted it and my American Legion career was better mm-hmm. um, than my high school career for many reasons, but uh, that, that was part of that. But, you know, it, it just, it just came with reps, you know, you just got to keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And doing yeah. It. So this, this is odd. This was not my intention. My intention is to keep the focus on you, but there's a correlation here. So your high school was three years because you went to Lake Washington, which you were a kangaroo right. and that kangaroos, kangaroos. Yeah. yeah. And they, they were a bigger Kinko school. I think that's why they were yeah. just three years. So yeah, or 4A. Or 4A, right. So when you when you left that, when you were playing American Legion and having more success um, in that league or with that team, what do you think it was between high school? Um, I, I have a little take on this, but between your high school coaching and your American Legion coaching or, or whatever it was that made you more successful there? I think it was getting out of that uh, idea that I didn't belong like these kids. So I played Woodenville Legion and, um, and these were kids that like literally recruited me. Um, there were some great players that played there. And this was a, a team that was made up of Woodenville, Bothell. And then I was this weird, you know, like Washington kid that came in there. And, um, I, I feel like, and, and, and this, this was my experience, like all through my baseball career, like being the outsider coming in, like I had a better opportunity to, um, you know, prove myself, but like also be a part of a whole that like, didn't have some preconceived notion of who I was or what I was, mm-hmm. you know, like in, in high school, I was, you know, sort of pigeonholed into you know, this, this one thing. And, and I always thought like I could do better than that. Mm -hmm. Um, and even though I had, you know, moments where I felt like I would, I would shine, I never was able to overcome that in that, that, that construct. So like, it was, it was fun to go, you know, be a part of a team with people that I I didn't know as well. I didn't grow up with, Mm-hmm. you know, and we didn't have that history, you know, and so, and so that really worked out. And th- that's been my experience a lot of places. I mean, television, you know, is a very, um, it's, uh, you know, kind of a vagabond existence, you know, you're, you're going from one place to another, you know, you're working with random people and, you know, you, you got to work your way in and, you know, become a, a family in some ways. And I think that's, help that too, you know, try to foster that sort of relationship, that teamwork in that. Cause in the end, like, it doesn't matter where you came from or what you've done before. Like if you can come in and contribute on this team, like you're in, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so you graduate high school. Do you go straight to Washington state? Well, so I went to a little college in Missouri uh, called 
Central Methodist, and uh, I, I, I got in. I got in. My grades were not great. I, I really hadn't figured out uh, school yet. Like I was a horrible high school student. I didn't. I didn't enjoy school in general. Like taking tests and that sort of thing. Like it just didn't. It didn't resonate with me at all. I wasn't an idiot. I, I kind of knew that, but like school told me that I sort of was. But uh, going there, and I really tried hard, and I and I knew I had some aptitude for it. And then like I I went there and I flunked out. Um, you know, I didn't even get to play baseball uh, when I went out there. Oh, I went really? there to play baseball. That was my whole goal. I was working out with the team and then I flunked out. I never even got to play a game. Came home, total failure, partied for a year. And then, um, you know, got that out of my system. I went to Bellevue College and I, I through some stroke of luck, I uh, applied to this. Um, it's called interdis interdisciplinary studies. And they, they offer it to this day. This was a pilot program at the time. And it's based on the Evergreen State College model. Mm -hmm. And they and they basically there were no tests. Um, it was just a a full course curriculum. So like I was getting, you know, 15 credits, uh, you know, through three different disciplines where there was one central theme. And and I took a couple of these courses and not having the, the the weight of like rote memorization and tests and those sorts of things like it changed my life mm -hmm. absolutely changed my life and and i realized i wasn't an idiot and that it wasn't it wasn't me that was the problem it was the way that i was learning i had to learn how to learn if that makes any sense and once i learned how i learn the rest of school was easy like mm -hmm. i was able to um apply what I had learned and how I'd learned it into like every discipline sense. Mm -hmm. So that was a godsend to me. It changed my life. And um, I'm very grateful for that experience. Otherwise, I, I don't know if I would have continued on with school or, you know, you know, continued on to university where I was able to, you know, pursue broadcasting. But that but that that's a really important aspect too. like, learning how to learn. How do you learn? Right. What resonates with you? Like what's, what's important to you? Cause school, you know, with tests and memorization and that, if that's not your thing, you know, if it's baseball statistics, I'm all over it. Like mm -hmm. I, I can, I can, I can go on for days on that, but like, you know, who did what, when, in what year and all that stuff, you know, for like history or geography, like, forget it. Right. But, you know, that's that's a huge, huge thing. And, and that and that allows you to become true to yourself. How did you so <clears throat> I, I can relate to school making school made me feel stupid. And this is yeah. my I'm going to do my own. This is my little bone to pick with the education system. The way it's set up right now is they have a certain type of learning. They, they have their own style. They have the topics that everyone needs to learn and they will 
things are changing a little bit now, but they'll take a kid who's young. Let's say they're nine, 10, 11 years old. The kid maybe had a shitty breakfast, goes to school where he has pizza for lunch with a go-gurt full of sugar and then finishes that off with a popsicle and wants to go climb trees. And they're, they're sitting him down in the class and they're saying, he doesn't learn or she doesn't learn. He, she needs Adderall. They need this. They need to be in special education. But like you said, had you asked the kid to show me the cheat codes to some online video game, they could write everything down. They could study, they could tell you, create a map. They could do anything that pertained to what they wanted to learn. Uh, but I'm curious, how did you teach yourself to learn the, the way that the education system was providing or, or a way that clicked with them? Because that was difficult for me to, to yeah. even transition to. So in this model, um, and and I I can't say enough about it. Like it was a, it was a it was not about tests. It was about participation in class. You know, demonstrating what you're learning. You know, what are you providing to the group? You know, we would have group discussions about these books I was learning. And this is this is a remarkable thing. Like like I I I, I was a, always a good writer. And I, I could read well and, and those, those sorts of things. But for my mom, like to watch me go from just, you know, whatever, just partying and, you know, like I, I was not into anything, mm -hmm. you know, to reading Dostoevsky and Camus and Sartre and like getting deep into these, you know, like really heavy things, you know. Um, because it was part of the curriculum of this class, because I knew once I ingested it, I could then, you know, come up with an interpretation and present it to the class. Like that was like mind altering to me. So I'm, I'm devouring these classic works, you know, like heavy philosophy stuff, um, and, and, and really digging it. And then, you know, to be able to present it in the way that I was interpreting it. And then getting feedback on that for me, that was, I mean, that's, it is high level learning and I, and I get that, but like at that time, like I didn't know that all I knew is that I was able to have a stage and a voice in this process. And then at the end of the semester, instead of having a test or a final or whatever, you would create some sort of a presentation to the class in terms of what it is you'd learned and how you'd interpret it. So I was writing plays. I mean, that was kind of my way of doing it. And I'd never written a play, but I wrote a few about, you know, how, how I was going to interpret this, this information. And, um, and that actually started a whole new thing for me where um, the drama uh, chair for the college came in to sort of adjudicate what we were doing. And then she came to me afterwards and she said, have you ever acted before? And I said, I've never acted before. And she said, well, you should. And she said, you know, we do that. And so then I went off on this other little sidetrack and I almost pursued that as a career um, acting. Um, and I came very, very close, but I ended up going to Washington State after I, you know, got my four points and got my GPA up enough to get out of there. And then I went to Wazoo and, and did what it was I was in, in originally intending to do in broadcasting, um, which was great. But I, I, I do often think like what would have happened had I gone down that acting road, 
because I've seen a lot of people that I not only, I worked with at Bellevue, like uh, Jim Caviezel. I was his first, um, you know, I mean, people know who he is. Mm -hmm. um, I was his first acting scene partner. He was a fellow student at, <laughs> at Bellevue College. And then a lot of my friends have, have gone on to be very successful in Hollywood. And like, so it happens. And I almost went down that road, but I, I didn't trust myself enough, honestly, because I, I was too much of a partier. I, 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 I didn't trust myself to go to LA. And then as my dad put it, like what happens when you go and get that acting degree, you have a piece of paper that says you can act. And, and I thought about that a lot. And, and I knew that I would have to do a lot of jobs and I would have to work really hard just to get that job. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I really thought about that hard. And then I, 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 I pivoted back to broadcasting and, um, I, I, I can't say it was the right call. I don't know, but, um, it was the call I made. Was it a, was it the, the safe route or the safer route? Safer route. Yeah. yeah. The safer was. route. Yeah. Safer route. I mean, I knew I would get paid doing what it is I wanted to do as opposed to doing some job that I didn't really like in order to make the means to do what I was going after. Um, so there was some of that. And I think, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours thing, mm -hmm. it's, it, it's in my case, it's true. You know, I mean, I can't even tell you how many hours I've put in on television, like on live television, you know, doing what I do. Um, but I do that, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that's, and that's the main focus of, of, of what I've done for 33 years is, is like, you know, that as opposed to waiting tables and, and right. trying to figure that out. Cause I'm horrible at that. Horrible, horrible at waiting tables. Horrible. Okay. I mean, I'm, the worst, the, the worst restaurant service industry person ever. Okay. And I, I know that from, you know, my high school experience. From your, well, you could have gotten better. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, probably not. Do you No, I, I can tell you stories. No, probably not. What uh, I have to ask, what was, what was the nightmare high school waiting, uh, waiting table story? What, what was, oh what God. haunts you yeah, to not even go yeah, back to I was to working it. at this, like this hot shit French restaurant in, in downtown Kirkland. And, um, the head chef Philippe was like, I, and I was, I was a bus boy. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't even figure that out because there was just there was just too much going on, too many tables, too many orders. And I had to do this and then I had to do that. And it was just like just a lot of, you know, like I have to be there and then I have to be there. And then like as a waiter, you got to take this and oh, and I want that. And oh, OK, like it was just too much for me. Mm -hmm. um, I got back to the back. I had screwed something up. Philippe took this hard roll and he just hucked it at me as hard as he could. And it just. I mean, I, I had a duck to avoid it. And I was like, man, maybe the restaurant industry isn't for me. Um, yeah, not good. Well, well, it looks like things worked out going the college <laughs> route and, and going yeah. the news route. Uh, but it isn't too late to get back into it. And, and you can speak to this <laughs> as, as not, not waiting tables. I'm not recommending that, but getting back into acting. And, and you can speak to this as much yeah. as you want. Um, and, I, and actually, I plan to. 
Okay, because I saw, I did see, I, as I told you, I did uh, about 48 hours of, of deep investigation. And it, it looks like cool. you, it looks like you do a little bit of voiceovers and a little bit of, is it uh, improv or, or sketch yeah. comedy or am, am I right yeah. there? That's my, yeah, I mean, that's, that's my background. So once I went to Wazoo and then I was, I was, you know, studying broadcasting, like they had this uh, sketch comedy show there called Live at Eight that um, I did for the time I was there. And, you know, it was wonderful. I mean, just a great experience. Like they, they give you control of the, the college channel and you can create whatever show you want and however you want to do it. And I got, you know, connected with some like-minded weirdos who, you know, were really creative and really funny. And a lot of those people have gone on to have really successful careers in Hollywood and um, just super, and they're still great friends to this day, like the core of that group. Like, you know, uh, I can't, you know, that, that was just a great experience. Just the idea that we had complete control of what we were doing. We we're going to create this, we we're going to produce it um direct it all ourselves and then throw it on television and we won a bunch of awards got written up in rolling stone like we we thought we were we were great and so there was another one of those things where it's like gosh do i do i go that route and so it was the second one of those even though i was you know you know majoring in broadcasting i minored in drama but at the same time like i thought like you know what if and i i i you know, contemplated it again, and then, and then uh, decided to. Now I want to do sports, so that's 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 what I got into. The news thing just happened later, but yeah. So this is just fun fact. Um, who do you think is? I can't say they're the most famous. I was surprised when I found this out. But who would you think is the most famous actor to come out of Washington State University? The most famous actor to come out of Washington State University. This one surprised um, me. Maybe Dolph Lundgren. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I'm <laughs> back so you know that. That's yeah. funny. We were, we were talking about that because when we were um, doing the show, we um, realized that Dolph Lundgren had come there and studied at Washington State as an exchange student. Yeah, I was when I found that out, I was like, <laughs> I think it was like a chemistry. He did something with chemistry or something like that. Or, I'm, I'm not sure, but... Yeah, that one, that one always, when I first heard it, it surprised me. Drago. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, Rocky Four. So you go, so you come into Washington State, you enter the Edward R. Murrow College of Communication, which, side note, I went to Washington State to get into sports broadcasting, and I failed. Really? First, first semester. I didn't, see, I didn't know this about you, Derek. Yeah, so I went in and... and this is a little bit different than you, but I went there and I partied. I think I attended. <laughs> there, there's one. There's one class that I went to. It was a communication course, and this is when when um, people say, "Oh, do you have the dream of you know you're taking a test and you're naked like that nightmare?" I had a class that I went to three times, and, and I played baseball in junior college, so I was devoted to it. It was everything. I used to sit in the front two rows of class in community college and. That was my life. So when I went to Washington State, I wanted to be a kid. And I just had a great time, but I didn't really attend class that much. And there was a, a final that I walked into 10 minutes late. This is like a nightmare story. And it's in one of the auditorium classes that's steep. Like it's like everyone's looking yeah. down on you. 
Like Brian Hall. Y- yes, yes. So 10 minutes late to the final, walk in. The only seat available is in the very front. There's probably, it's not the biggest, but there's probably like 90, 90 kids in this class. And I walk in and I sit down and the teacher doesn't like me anyway, because she doesn't even really know me. So I walk up, show my ID to take the final and I sit down and it's a Scantron test that you have to take in number two pencil. And I realized I didn't have one. I walked up and I said, I said, Mrs. So-and-so, can I use a number two pencil for this final? And she just looked at me and said, good luck, Mr. Bear. And I took it in pen. (laughs) I was, I was in and out of that class in like eight minutes, like see ya when I walked out. And so I, yeah, so I failed. Um, but I hung around and waited tables and bartended at Denny's and Pullman. And then I, I don't think it was, I don't know what it would, would have been called when you were there, but, um, I worked at a bar that it's changed names a lot, but it was called Shakers at one point. And it was a, Shakers was famous, but Anyway, I I digress into my Washington State journey. But so you you go there and you don't fail out of out of the communication school. And where does that land you after you graduate? So I went to uh, Boise, Idaho. I was uh, interning at KIVI down there. Um, And that was a that was a great experience for me. I, I, I worked really hard. I was scared. I was, I was so scared because I was, I was on my own, like completely on my own and, um, had zero money and I had to go in there every day and sort of earn it, you know, and I was working in the sports department, but they would throw me out on, you know, different stories. Um, and I would, you know, turn up, a package as we call it, like a, you know, little story for the news and, um, and they were putting them on the air. So I was feeling this great sense of accomplishment. Like I'm actually going on the air, you know, doing this television stuff. And then, um, the two sports guys were out for a weekend. Like one guy had to go get an award somewhere. The other guy was off or whatever. And the news director called me up and said, we would like you to anchor the sports cast. Now I'm an unpaid intern <laughs> and I'm thinking like, wow, this is great. So I had made, you know, good connections with the people in that newsroom there. And they were very supportive, well, mostly supportive. Some people couldn't believe they were doing that, but I went out there there was this assignment editor, I remember, who used to always just call me intern, like intern, hey, intern, you know, yeah. hey, intern. And um, and then I got out there and I mean, needless to say, I was a little bit nervous. It was the first newscast I'd ever given on a broadcast station. But um, then I, you know, got back in the newsroom and the assignment editor was back there and he goes, hey, intern. And I said, yeah. And he goes, looks like you belong there. And oh, I, and that's I thought, cool. That's cool. Right. But, that, but they, those people really took me under their wing. And it was through those connections I made there that I was able to get my first actual full-time TV job up in Great Falls, Montana. So it was a good experience. 
Well, that and that's a great experience. And trial by fire sucks, but it is a really good way to figure out if you belong there. And I think it's awesome yeah. that he gave you that confidence right away. Because that yeah. had he not said anything, maybe you'd be in your head and wondering. So that that's a huge, huge thing. From I don't know if you'd call and that a mentor, but someone you look up to. Yeah, yeah. You put a tape together. That's that's how you get the next job, you know. But it was really through the connections I made there. That, you know, the people that saw how hard I was working, that they were able to, you know, put the word out to people that they knew in the business that, hey, this kid actually, you know, is, has something. Yeah, you know? can do this. And, 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 and that, that something is almost always, you know, yes, you've got to have, you know, some talent, but like, you know, you, you just got to want it, you mm -hmm. know, and you got to show you want it. Mm -hmm. And so when you moved from there, did you go to, I'm a little confused on this. Um, did you go to Green Bay to work for a local news station or were you covering the Packers specifically? Yeah, I was covering the, well, it's the Packers. I mean, the in Green Bay, I mean, that, that town leads I, green I, and gold. Yeah. So if anything would happen with the Packers, it would lead the newscast. So, uh, I mean, anything, whether the free agent signing or whatever. I mean, yeah. like it, it's the lead story of the newscast in Green Bay. Um, <laughs> I mean, as the sports director of the NBC affiliate there, I mean, it was like just a, a great job. I mean, in a town that's absolutely football crazy, the, the best line I heard about Green Bay is that it's a, a drinking town with a football problem. <laughs> yeah. And that's absolutely. Yeah. And this and this was the comeuppance of Green Bay, 96, 97, where, you know, like, you know, Favre was, was on the ascendancy. Holmgren mm -hmm. was there. You know, they were they were, you know, Reggie White. They were they were on the rise. And I was literally right in the middle of it every single day. You know, every press conference in the locker room, like, you know, partying at bars with the guys after mm -hmm. the games like it like it was an immersive experience in what a great football team is all about. And, um, it, it was, it was so cool. I can't, I can't even say enough. And before that it was, you know, down in Arkansas covering the Razorbacks, um, and they were on, you know, national championship runs. So I got super lucky there after, you know, great falls, then Arkansas and then green Bay. That was just a great, you know, you know, way to cut my teeth in the sports thing. So I was ready to come, home i got the chance to come home and then uh i was ready for whatever and so actually so with that which one would you say was more exciting because college football is really exciting but green bay does feel like a college town and you got yeah. to cover two super bowls correct with green yeah. bay which one when you look back on do you reflect on more fondly uh i mean you know for different reasons uh both of them, but like in Green Bay, it's it's just hard to to quantify what that time was like because mm -hmm. they hadn't been good in so long, and it was finally you know ripening. It, it was it was right there, and so to watch that team that was just supremely talented, and to watch them every single day, mm -hmm. you know, at that time, I mean, they had the best defense, you know, led by Reggie White in terms of points allowed in football history. Uh, it, it was really something. And Favre was uh, just a you know, special athlete, you know, mm -hmm. the, like 
you know, at that time, I mean, that, that was the prime of his career. They should have won that second Super Bowl that they played against the Broncos. But they uh, ran into Terrell Davis. And there was a little bit of hubris that went into that, too. Like, I think they, they thought that they were going to walk over Denver that day. You know, the, the one where Mike Shanahan goes, this one's for John, you know, Elway's <laughs> first. Um, I don't remember that. Yeah. Well, in the locker room afterwards, Shanahan held up the trophy and said, this one's for John, you know, because and then they, they would go on to win another one. But um, yeah, it was that that was a really special time, special experience. Um, can't say enough about that. I mean, coming home to Seattle and to cover the teams that I grew up cheering for, like that was that was really great. And I mean, I can't say enough like the 2001 Mariner run, like incredible the Seahawks run and you know 2013 like I mean those are those are magical things but I I wasn't as um you know just absolutely insular in that in that experience as as I was there in Green Bay because it's because it's a special place and and that was a really special team so when when you uh when you left Green Green Bay did you go from great Falls, go to Great Falls and then back to Seattle? What, what was so the pattern there? It was great. So so after my internship in Boise, it was Great Falls. That was my first job. Spent mm-hmm. three years there and then two years in Arkansas covering the Razorbacks. Got the job up in Green Bay, sort of moving up markets, you know. Mm-hmm. And, then, um, and then I had made a connection through an acting class at Bellevue College with Tony Ventrella, who had a, you know, like kind of apropos of nothing, like just showed up at our acting class one day, a scene study class, because he was working on doing some community theater, which he still does to this day in this community. And um, he, you know, wanted to, you know, do some work and it worked with his schedule. Um, And so he showed up and then I I got to know him a little bit, worked with him a little bit there and, and kind of, you know, picked his brain about how, how you do it in the, you know, sports broadcasting thing. And he explained, you know, you go and go to school and get a tape together. And then, you know, and, and so I did, and, and I would send him tapes um, of my work over the years and he would always, always respond. And he was always um, very positive as Tony always is. And he, um, one day when I was uh, in Green Bay, I was literally covering the Super Bowl and uh, they had flown me in at Cairo. Tony was at Cairo at that point, but he was my idol growing mm-hmm. up like as a sportscaster. Like I, I, I stole phrases of his and stuff on the air for years. And um, uh, he, he said, I think we have a job for you. And I came up and got the job in Seattle. I mean, that was, that, that was, you know, I mean, in terms of, you know, visualization, like what you wanted, like a dream situation, mm-hmm. like I, I, I visualized what that would be like. I, I envisioned myself, you know, they talk about, you know, you do vision techniques and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And I would, I would envision myself in that spot. And, and I literally did exactly that, what, what I wanted, but it was Tony that did it. Like, I mean, it was that connection that allowed that to happen. Cause I just fostered that over many years. And, um, 
that that's how I got it. What would you do? This is one of those moments that just is going to be powerful for any listener, um, regardless of what they're doing for work. Um, I'm, I believe in visualization. I think it's so powerful. Um, when you were doing this, what, what routine were you doing? Like, were you journaling and sitting there? Were you meditating? How were you envisioning this to make it come true? I, I it's a, that's a, that's a great question. I think, I think it was visualization, uh, visualization, um, not articulation, but I, I think, I think visualization is huge because I would sit there, I would close my eyes and I would literally envision myself sitting on that seat in that space, in that studio. I mean, it wasn't something I was super uncomfortable with, but like for years, you know, from my very first job, I would think like, how would I deal with the situation? Like I would think, you know, Tom Flores was the head coach of the Seahawks. What if I was like, you know, in that seat and I was interviewing him there? What am I talking about? Who am I interacting with on the set? And it all literally came true. Like and it, and it happened. So I remember the day so clearly, it was, you know, a huge thing when I, um, I got the call that I had gotten the job at Cairo. I was at work and like to come home was, you know, I mean, I had no idea I was ever going to be able to come back to Seattle. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I could have ended up anywhere, you know, in this, you know, weird industry. Like I said, it's like a vagabond existence. <laughs> You're going off to whatever. And like, um, but I'd always had that as something that I really, you know, would like to have had have happened. Um, and, and when I got that call, I, I walked out the door and I walked out of the station and I went down a hill, you know, across the street, down a hill. And I just screamed at the top of my lungs and I jumped around and I just, I just screamed out loud. I fucking did it, did it. And then, and then I come back and I got, I'm literally getting chills right now. I, I came back home and if people will go, oh, that was your dream. That was your dream to like do weekend sports at Cairo. Yeah, that was my, literally my dream. And, um, you know, maybe it's not much of a dream to some people, but it was literally my dream. And then I came back and I was sitting on the set the very first night and, and Joyce Taylor was, um, my, she was the co-anchor. Um, Susan Hutchinson was off that night. And then, um, Rabel was in the other seat and Harry Wappler was doing weather. These are, these are people mm -hmm. I grew up watching. Right. Um, and I sit down, I introduce myself to Joyce and I say, Hey, how's it going? And, and she, and you know, I said, Hey, I'm from here. And like, she goes, isn't that cool to be able to come home and do this? Cause she's, you know, the same thing. And, and I said, yeah, it's just incredible. And I said out loud, um, I've been dreaming of sitting in the seat for years and Rabel without missing a beat. He goes, he goes, that's funny because we just had those chairs brought in like last month. <laughs> that's awesome. That's hilarious. Cool. So like, I mean, that was, yeah. So that was the whole thing. And then I got to work with all those great people at Cairo. Um, and then I did that for a couple of years and then I got hired at Fox sports to, uh, you know, do Mariners and, 
and all that stuff. I was doing Detroit and Seattle all at the same time. It was long oh, wow. story. Yeah, that's... yeah, it was it was crazy. They, it was a regional sports project, and they decided to have this the Seattle hub do the Detroit sports as well. So I was literally doing like a, I would do like a Pistons pregame, and then like a, a Mariners pregame, Pistons post, and then the Mariners post game. Like it was, you know. Really Why did weird. they want to do that? I've never heard of that time before. Zones, I think the time zones were part of it, but it was okay. a poorly kept secret in Detroit that their broadcast was coming out of Seattle. Mm -hmm. So it was a tough one. I mean, Detroit being the hardcore sports town that it is, like, you know, coming out of a Red Wings game, you know, I'd do the post game and then, you know, go right into Mariners pre or whatever. Yeah, I mean, but it also taught me a lot about how, how uh, you do long form broadcast without a script too. So that, that helped me a lot. And is that just because you were on the spot when you were doing these interviews? Well, so like, uh, like for like a Red Wings pregame, there was, you know, a fair amount of scripted stuff for, but for a post game, you're just going by the seat of your pants. A lot of times, you know, you, you just, you're, you're taking statistics and, and, trying to contextualize them and then you'll toss to a post-game interview or whatever podium sound or whatever like a coach mm -hmm. you know talking at the podium after the game um so yeah i mean that 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 helped me a ton and especially moving into news mm -hmm. which i ended up doing uh after three years at fox well so that's that's a perfect segue because i was going to ask about that so we we talked a lot about sports um but from my research, that's you've covered some pretty incredible uh, pieces or you've had incredible stories that you've covered. I'm going to ask this in a two part way. One is how did you transition into that going from sports to like the um, the I believe it was the tsunami in Sri Lanka. Was, was, yeah. was that it? How, how did you transition? And then this is the second part of the stories that you've covered, because there's a ton of them, what are one or two that stand out and that um, you're most proud of? Yeah, so in 03, I, um, my contract wasn't renewed at Fox and it was a, a really tumultuous time there because the, the regional project wasn't working for them. Um, so Fox sports net is now root sports. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, um, it, it's a, a different setup as what we had then. Um, but so that they were, they were moving out of the regional thing. It didn't work. It should have worked, but it didn't. Um, partly because of how it was all set up. Like I was describing to you, like, you know, having hubs in different towns and things like that they needed to have it more if, if you're doing regional sports like keep it regional it didn't work i was laid off i was out of a job i um i it, it was it was hard i had little kids and i had a mortgage to pay and i i honestly didn't know what to do and um i had never considered doing news really like it, it was so far out of my vernacular because you know sports is a completely different animal. So um, I, uh, through my very good friend, Christine Chen, who I actually worked with in Montana, my very first job, 
she was the co-anchor of the morning news program at that time. And we had lunch one day and I was just, you know, poking around, seeing if I could continue in television in some way. I honestly had no idea. I, I had uh, looked around at, at uh, sports jobs. I mean, there was that there was nothing in the country that could pay me what I was making. And like I had to support a family and, you know. I, I considered I was up for a job in Tampa and I was thinking like, gosh, do I, do I want to move to Tampa? You know, like it was just like, it was one of those times. And then, um, uh, I got a phone call from the news director at, at channel 13 and he wanted to come in and talk to me and I, I met with him and I thought he was interviewing me for a news or for a sports job. Um, and I had no idea. Um, but we were just chatting and I'm, you know, you know, talking him up. So he gives me this job as a, a freelance reporter and he throws me out on the street as a general assignment reporter. And I had literally no idea what I was doing, none whatsoever. And I went out my second day out on the street. There was a huge marina fire in Seattle. And these boats are bouncing off each other, like, you know, lanterns catching each other on fire. And I'm doing the best I can to cover this breaking news live on the scene. And I didn't know it at the time, but apparently CNN had picked up my live reporting and I was, you know, I was, <laughs> I was reporting there as well. And I came back to the station and I go into the news director's office and I say, hey, how did I do? And he goes, well. It was okay. And he, he takes me in his office and he explains, okay, this is, this is how you do it. Okay. Breaking news. You know, it's, it's this and that, you know, you gotta, you gotta set the scene up and you don't, you don't pretend like it's a continuing thing. You have to set the scene each individual time. I mean, the very basics of breaking news, but I learned so much and I did that for a couple of months and then he let me anchor the morning news program, uh, two times. Uh, and then after the second day, he said, do you want that job? And I said, yeah, I'll take that. And that's how I ended up there. And that was in 2003. Um, so 20 years later, still getting up ridiculously early, banging it out. And, and was, so it was 2003. Was that when, was that when you covered the tsunami in South okay, Asia? So or the, was that 2005? Yeah, so that was a, that was a situation where, I, I was embedded with a, a local aid group mm -hmm. that was going in there right after the tsunami. It had just happened. It was, you know, the most horrible thing you can imagine. So this was like weeks after the tsunami had happened. Um, and so I flew to Sri Lanka and um, this aid group was working with another NGO on the ground there um, to get help to these people. And it, um, I mean, you talk about, you know, just absolute obliteration. I mean, people's families were washed away in this thing and, um, just, it was a transformative thing. So I came back, I mean, I was going to do some reporting on it. <clears throat> I knew I was going to do, you know, some story. I wasn't reporting live from there, but. I knew I was going to put together something, but it ended up being a 30 minute special that I put together. And it was almost like a plea for help. Mm -hmm. um, 
what I ended up putting together because I just I couldn't believe what it was. And they they gave me the 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 leeway to you know present it like that. <clears throat> they didn't have a problem with me, you know, saying these people are in dire need, you know, and they they need some help. The beauty of what we did is that we got help. I mean, we raised a lot of money through that particular special. And one guy, I mean, he, I think he donated like a couple hundred grand to this thing. Wow. I mean, fishermen who had lost everything, like we bought them boats, you know, boats so they could go back out and go fishing again, you know, and make a living. Um, That's amazing. It was, yeah, no, it really was. And and to see it turn around like that, like you, you make this, like, look at this horrible situation and somebody would come through and a lot of people did, but, you know, somebody would come through and say, I would, I would like to do something about this and actually do that. And to watch them get the stuff they need to go back to work mm -hmm. and provide for their people. Like it was that, that was really gratifying. It was powerful. How did you, so, so you had, you had that experience. How did you get involved with the earthquake in Haiti? That was a phone call I got on an afternoon where I was up, I was up in Vancouver. I was doing some preview stuff for the Olympics there. And I was at a friend's house up there and I, and I was looking at the TV and the earthquake had just happened. And, and I, I was looking at those pictures going, oh my God, those people are going to be absolutely devastated. And especially, you know, having dealt with, you know, what I saw in Sri Lanka, like, mm -hmm. I mean, I know how desperate those situations get. And then the next thing I know, I get a phone call and I say, can you get back here? Cause we want to, you know, embed you again, we would send you to Sri Lanka or to, uh, to Haiti tomorrow with, um, the uh, Air Force. And so I jumped on a, a C-130 with all these supplies. Uh, I mean, this this is crazy. Those transport planes, like they packed in all this heavy equipment, flew it out there. And, you know, we do this hard landing at the Port-au-Prince Airport. I mean, within two days, I'm, I'm in the middle of it and then off they go like in five minutes, they're all off the plane and gone with all their stuff. Just, you know, heavy, you know, equipment, moving equipment and um, uh, what did I just say? Equipment, moving equipment, heavy, equipment, heavy movie equipment, heavy equipment, um, like just, you know, just to, to move stuff as quickly as possible, mm -hmm. you know, to get stuff from one place to the other. Um, just to watch them work, to watch, you know, our military at work in, in this, uh, in this danger zone. And then what they packed back into this jet was, uh, refugees, people who needed to get out like desperately. So then I'm talking with these people on the way back. We were going to Charleston, South Carolina without any idea how we're going to get back to Seattle. And that's a whole other story, but we, um, but we flew out of there and then and then we talked to all those people who had lost everything in in the Port-au-Prince area um that was incredible so yeah i mean you talk about you know like the absolute worst 
case scenario. Absolute for, devastation. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to even imagine. And so, yeah, we did, we did some good reporting there uh, on that. And it was, uh, you know, honestly, thanks to JVLM and, and the military for letting us, you know, embed with them and, and do that. I actually got to fly up uh, when we were flying from, I think we had to go to Miami first and drop those people off, those refugees. Mm-hmm. They needed to get out because they, they, you know, had nothing. Um, and then from there, the, the cargo jet was empty and I got to fly up in the cockpit um, oh, wow. to go to Charleston. Wow. That's pretty Which cool. Was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was pretty cool. That's so you've, this and is then a, we were stuck and then, then we had to figure out a way to get back to Seattle, but that's another story. At least, at least you're back in, in the U S and, right. and that, so is that the first Emmy award you won? Uh, well, the first one was for sports and then the second one was for, uh, my cancer story. Okay. So, yeah. so we'll transition. That's next on my list anyway. So we'll transition to that. So, you were diagnosed, was it 2009? Was that yeah. the year 2009 with, is it Hodgkin's lymphoma or non-Hodgkin's yeah. lymphoma? Hodgkin's Hodgkin. lymphoma. Yeah. Tell me about that. And, and, and we've talked about this briefly, but you know, up, up until this point, and not to say that there weren't these trials and tribulations, but I'm assuming, and I hate to assume, this was a major holy shit moment. Um, mm-hmm. What was uh, you? What led you to go to the doctor, and then once you were diagnosed, um, how did it go from there? Yeah, I had these lumps here on the side of my on my neck, and um, and they weren't going away. And I was noticing because I was running a lot at that time, and and I noticed that I was just a little, you know, more tired than usual, and. I just didn't feel right. And these lumps were weird. And I got a, you know, a biopsy done and it came back negative, but I wasn't buying it because it, it just didn't seem right. And then Mm -hmm. I went and got some of these things ripped out of my neck and, and, um, and the doctor told me that it's, you know, probably lymphoma, but we're not sure, but we don't want you to go home and start Googling a bunch of stuff about lymphoma. Cause we, you know, cause there's, you know, what, 64 different kinds of lymphoma. Mm-hmm. Um, and so of course I go home and I mean, I'm a reporter. I'm a, <laughs> right. I was going to say <laughs> I'm right. like every, everything I possibly can and really freak myself out. But, um, I knew that like the kind I wanted, you know, of all the possible options was Hodgkin's cause it was very treatable and curable. Um, so that's what I was kind of hoping for, um, when you're left with those kinds of options. And so, um, and that's what it ended up being. And I remember when I got that diagnosis, it took, it took a few days and it was a, a pretty scary time because I, you know, could have been a death sentence or it could have been, you know, something, you know, treatable. Um, and it ended up being something more treatable and I celebrated, I went out, I literally was like celebrating that I got this cancer, like as weird as that sounds, but I did. It it doesn't, it it doesn't. It sounds very normal if you have 64 different types to deal with and some are the immediate death sentence and you're hoping for one, then I can imagine that was a, you know, still scary, but a major sense of relief. 
Yeah, because you can get treated, take your medicine, as I put it, mm-hmm. and then, you know, you'll get through it. And it sucked. I mean, I'm not going to lie, you know, lost my hair and, you know, I had to deal with, you know, major fatigue and all that stuff. And I worked all through it and documented it. I don't know. I don't yeah. know why I decided to do that necessarily, but, um, and, and, you know, had I gotten the same diagnosis today, I don't know if I would have gone that exact route that I did. Um, why not? I think maybe, I'm sorry. Why not? I think, I think maybe it was like some hubris. I knew that it was, you know, as I call it kind of a wimpy cancer and I, I would have probably, I had a, you know, 90% chance of, you know, beating it at that time. That isn't to say that it's not going to come back and it does, you know? Um, so you're always kind of looking over your, you know, your shoulder over that. But I, I think like documenting it and the way I did it was, um, short sighted, uh, and, and not altogether authentic. Um, cause I wasn't, um, I think I was, uh, you know, social media does this to us where we, uh, feel like we need to present this version of ourselves. Like, you know, I'm going to be this brave guy doing this. Now there was, there was some journalistic value to this, like take people inside a chemo treatment mm-hmm. or inside of a radiation treatment you know, the people normally wouldn't want to look at. Right. Mm -hmm. But so I did that under the, those, you know, auspices, but I feel like in the end, like it personally, maybe it wasn't the best call on my, on my end to be as open as I was. Cause like, um, for, for many reasons, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I could, I could talk about this for a while, but in, in the end, like, I think I was, I was opening myself up to what I call, uh, the wounded bird syndrome where like people to this day will come up to me. How are you doing? Hey, oh, how's your, yeah. how's your health? You know, and I, I don't I'm good, yeah. you know, and, um, I don't know. So maybe so short-sighted maybe is the way I would, I would put that. But then again, I was, I was younger and, you know, I, I don't, maybe I felt like I had something to prove or something. Well, if I can lightly push back on that and I, my opinion isn't worth anything, but you recognizing that now, well, you didn't know that then, you know, it was in that moment, it was, you, that was a way to document what people are so scared of. And I would argue that whether or not it was um, a, a wimpy cancer, cancer is really fucking scary for anybody. Oh, and, yeah, totally. And if you were to, you know, there's probably, and I'm, like, I'm really, I'm really guessing here, but, but to, to bring Bill's journey, and that's what it was called, right? Bill's journey was the documentary. I would say that, well, you feel a certain type of way about making that, you know, now looking back, there are so many families that maybe were maybe a dad, maybe someone's gone through the same diagnosis and for that family to be able to watch you beat it 
for the kid that has no idea cancer is cancer. It doesn't matter, matter if it's a wimpy one or stage four or something else. I would argue that that served as a layer of confidence that things are going to be okay and maybe a way to lighten it up, seeing someone go through it and also setting the expectations for this is what it's going to look like. This is what chemo is going to look like. I'm going to lose my hair. This is fatigue. So I wouldn't, once again, my opinion doesn't matter, but I wouldn't beat yourself up about that. I think that it, I don't think, I know for a fact without even seeing it, that it served somebody out there. And if it only served one person, then you did your job. Yeah, I, I think I think it I think it definitely did that. Mm-hmm. So so I appreciate you saying that, and and I think that's valid. Yeah, for sure. Cancer, it's just the word, the c word. It's just scary for for yeah. anybody, and it's hard to it understand. Is. You said there's 64 types. What does that even mean? You know, so so seeing you go through it, that that would absolutely be a guiding light for someone that's concerned or scared. Um, it, and so when you beat it i this is another are they thing coming after you derek what oh I'm, I'm i'm in uh i'm in belltown <laughs> so yeah you, you know how it is and may, maybe yeah maybe they are coming after me um <laughs> so so after after that happened or maybe it was during that time you were voted as washington man of the year <laughs> did you know that um, uh maybe you were voted as um, Western Washington. I don't remember what it was, but you were voted as Man of the Year in two thousand. Oh, for yeah, Washington. Oh, that Washington was, that was, um, so that was a evening magazine. A competing station ran that thing, and somehow I yeah, that was that was yeah, that's pretty weird. Yeah, well, well, it's it's out there. Um, so so getting to getting to the point of cancer and then pushing past that and being successful and continuing on um, as a successful anchor. What are, so I, I know in your personal life, I see that you travel a lot and it looks like, cause I did my, my deep investigation. I stalked your Instagram a little yeah. bit. You, you may, <laughs> um, you may ski a little bit as well. Oh yeah. And, no, I'm yeah. I, I ski. And you may have completed eight marathons. Is that, is that accurate? 10, 10. Yeah. Who's counting? Obviously I wasn't when I was doing my my investigation. (laughs) Um, So, so what is your, so we've looked through you being a successful anchor. You've, you've gotten two Emmy awards. You've had documentaries. You're a father. Um, What is it? Not what is it? What do you do? What are your personal interests? What are your personal hobbies that keep you going? What keeps me going? Um, I I just I just I just keep going. I I don't know. Like um, professionally, I I just keep showing up. Mm-hmm. I got, I got, you know, a few more years at this. I've been at it 33 and I, I have a few more. Um, and, uh, I enjoy the work. I mean, I think that's, that's the biggest thing. Um, I mean, it's, you know, d- to find something that you have a passion for, you know, and, um, and so the traveling thing is, you know, I, I just, I don't know if you're ever more alive than when you are 
on the road and and traveling, exploring, learning, you know. And I feel like my job is is learning. Professional mm-hmm. learner is what I often say my job is because like I'm I'm constantly learning about stuff and people and places and things. Um, and I love that. Like I'm I'm just a natural. I'm a curious person. And so like to to travel for me is is like a constant learning experience because you're in a place where the stimuli is you know different and and you you have to find your way around like i don't i don't know so like when i go to a different place i always just feel more alive so i i i like that a lot that's a big thing but in the end it's about um having something to be passionate about that's what keeps you going what's um what's your favorite travel destination impossible um i have i have favorite places i mean places i've been but like um i don't know like i was in new york uh, to visit my daughter a couple weeks ago i mean i i love new york Mm -hmm. like and, and, and part of it is that we're from here and Seattle is very different, but I don't know if there's, you know, like London has some similarities, but it's not the same. Like, I, I don't know if there's any place quite like New York. It's just, it's just so interesting to me. Like in every neighborhood is different. Every borough, like just has such a different character. I, I, I love, love New York. And then that, and that to me is a challenge. It's fascinating. Um, just finding my way around New York sometimes is fascinating, and that's that's intriguing to me. So, um, yeah, I, I really I do love it. Um, but you know, I mean, this is home. You know, mm-hmm. Seattle's home. And my daughter, even though like she was always fascinated with New York mm-hmm. and wanted to go to you know school there, live there, or whatever, and and she's doing it now. Like she's there, and she's like, God, I miss home. You know, I really. really I, and miss home. Part of it is the, you know, incredible humidity and heat in the summertime in New York. Right. And, and she hasn't really dealt with a hardcore winter yet, but she's in for that. So, right. so there's that too. Well, in New York, just, um, I remember, <clears throat> I remember my first time there. I, I love going to New York, but it just, there is a, to give, this is, this is a weird depiction of the way that I feel, but if you think about Avatar, when they talk about, and this, it's the furthest thing from New York is the movie Avatar, uh, being in that jungle, but everything's flowing and everything's connected. I remember right when I got into Times Square for the first time, the energy, you could feel the electricity of everything around you. Everyone's moving so quick. Everyone's on their, it's like schools of fish, you know, moving through the boroughs, moving through the subway system. And it just, it, it has an electricity to it that that I absolutely love. Um, so I, I would agree for being in a uh, U.S. destination, New York always, it, it never disappoints. That That's that's what I would say. Yeah. Um, and if you, so if you think about it, and I'm going to try to deconstruct a few of the um, habits or rituals that, that have made you successful, um, what is your, what are the first 60 minutes of your morning look like? The first 60 minutes of my morning are, are highly orchestrated. Um, I wake up uh, at, well, now at 4.14 a.m. Um, and I say a, a word or two. 
um, <laughs> inevitably just pops out of my mouth. And then um, brush my teeth. I um, shave if I haven't the night before, because I got to be out of the house quick, because I don't have a lot of time. And then I hop in the shower, grab my bag, and I'm out the door because I mostly put everything together and then I'm rushing into the studio because I'm, you know, I mean, I'm in Redmond right now, 14 minutes to work. And then um, I'm copy editing for about half hour, 45 minutes, my scripts. Um, and then I go get pretty and then I'm on television at five or at six. So um, sometimes at five. And, and those days I'm up even earlier. And then the, the words are even more strong that come out of my mouth when the alarm goes off. Yeah. But um, yeah, so so highly orchestrated. And then and then I'm on television and I'm literally waking up on television. Um, and I've been doing that for a really long time. And that's 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 a, a really weird routine. Um, that first 30 minutes on the air, I'm still like getting my faculties about me. Like I'll do uh, a Wordle. I'll try to do a Wordle um, yeah. before I'm on the air just to like kind of kick it into gear a little bit. Yeah. And I'm trying to do that spelling bee on the New York Times. I can't, I, I'm never, I, I can never get genius on that, but I, I keep working at that. Okay. So, but that's, but that's, that's kind of what my first hour is like. That, that's the first hour. <laughs> Uh, are you are you doing um, do you have any exercise or do you have any uh, exercise routines? Yeah. So like after work, I'll, I try to get a workout in unless like some guy wants me to do a podcast or whatever. And then and then I, I don't I don't get that in on time. But <laughs> yeah. I, do, I do try to like I'll, I'll try like most days I want to do something active after I'm done with work. I want to go. um either run or lift weight. I lift weights most days after work because it's just it's just a, a great uh, decompressor. Um, but now we're getting into the fall and so I'm thinking about hockey. I've been playing a lot of golf, but I would, or well, a little more golf. Um, and then um, go skiing. Like I can get out early enough. Uh, a lot of times I can go skiing. Skiing is the best release. I mean, it truly is the best. Yeah. There's, there's nothing like it. Yeah. When it's you, scientifically proven. You cannot think about work and ski at the same time. Impossible. I'll, I'll have to try that out or I'll have to remember the next time I go. But I mean, just, just speaking from Seattle, it's, uh, well, where do you go typically like weekday? Well, if I can go, if I can, I mean, get out of there at a decent time, then I can go up to Alpental and I mm -hmm. can, you know, get some, if, the, if there's fresh snow, like, that's easy. That's 45 minutes away. But if it's, if it's going to be, you know, um, a little higher elevation snow, I, I will bust down to crystal and try to get some tracks there. Um, but, uh, Alpental is kind of my go-to has been since I've been little really like that is such a gem that we have. It is in crystals. Great. Uh, so I, I can connect with you on this as well. Cause I get up at the same time. Well, I, I don't get up at four, 14, which you said 14, right? Yeah. Why not 415? I don't know. Okay. Because it's a, it's a, a minute before and that gives me a minute to, a minute. to play with. I mean, literally, I mean, I have it down to the minute and then I can pull into the parking lot and then I'm there at like 456. I walk in the door 
and then it's five. And then I know that I have this amount of time to copy edit. And then I've got this amount of time to go get pretty. And then I got to get on the air. So it's like, I mean, highly orchestrated. Mm-hmm. In, in leaving, leaving Seattle. So I know the routine is if you get out early enough, <clears throat> I typically do it on Wednesdays. That's just the day I do it, but you can be in 45 minutes. You can be up on the mountain and yeah. you leave, at least for me, I'm in Belltown. So I leave the skyscrapers. I leave this mini concrete jungle. And as you start to get on I-90 East and you start to work through uh, Mercer Island and then you're going to Issaquah and it starts to get a little bit more, I'll call it rural. It's like any stress or anxiety that you had on the way up there just goes away. And then you're in the totally. mountains and you're like, wow, this is great. And that that um, this is a story for another time, but you know, I used to spend more time uh, in Costa Rica in this last week or this last year, I was here for the whole winter and getting out of the city and getting up to the mountains took away that, that gray yep. feeling, you know, the, the bogged down gray. Cause I'm up on and the you mountain. You can get up above it. Yeah. yeah 100%. Sometimes, sometimes the, the sun will pop out up there, but it's not down here. And mm-hmm. so um, it does, it changes your, changes your perspective. And like, you know, a lot of people say, well, I got to get out of here and go see sunshine in the winter. And I totally get that. I'm, I'm right there with you. I want to do that, but you can do that just by getting up above it sometimes. And it does, it changes everything. I feel like once I get up to the brown signs up there, Mm -hmm. you know, around, you know, uh, yeah, if I, if I get up to the brown signs, like I just feel better. Like it just, it just feels better up there. And it's quick. Like it's, it's quick once you see it easy peasy. And then, you know, I mean, I mean, anytime I'm in the mountains, I feel great, but there's just something about it. I, maybe it's just about the altitude or whatever, but like, it just just changes everything. It it does. And maybe it's the cold, it's the crisp and you wake up even more being, being in that, uh, plus making, you know, making turns and fresh snow. I mean, yeah. And your legs are flexing. It's a good, it's just a, it's a great workout. Um, what would you say for, is there, is there anyone that you look at as a, a mentor that you'd want to thank or someone that looked up to that you looked up to and, um, guided your career path or, or was a force that, um, maybe you couldn't have done what you've done without them. Tony Ventrella. Tony Ventrella. Tony Ventrella was the. He was, so he started in Seattle in 81 at Como and then he went over to uh, King and he was the, the sports guy there and then uh, went to Cairo and was the main sports guy there. And then he hired me there. Um, And then after I, I had left it, he, he went to channel 13 and um, I ended up actually taking over for him on the morning show at Channel 13, which is kind of a weird deal. But then Tony went on and spent 12 years working for the Seahawks after that, um, doing a lot of their stuff. That he he was my um, he was my idol, the, the the guy I looked up to in the business, and and just in a just totally random happenstance was in an acting class with me at Bellevue College and was able to, you know, keep that connection going. And he was a great champion of mine and um, just a great dude. Like, you know, I, I, I probably wouldn't have gotten to Seattle when I did how I did without him. So I'll be forever grateful to that guy. What was, uh, what was the most impactful lesson that you learned from him or something you gained from him? 
don't take it all so seriously, you know? I mean, I think that was, that was, that was a big thing. Um, yeah, I, the younger me was, um, really hyper-focused on just, you know, getting ahead and like, you know, wanting to make my mark and all that stuff. And, um, I, yeah, I, 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 I took it all way too seriously for a long time. Um, and I think some of that just comes with age, you know, like when you're younger, you just, you want stuff so much more, you want it now, you know, I think it, particularly in this generation, you know, everything's got to come quick and we got to have it the way we want it. We want it now. Um, but in the end, like just, if you, if you don't take yourself so seriously and don't take your work so seriously, you'll probably be better off. Thank you. That, uh, I'm, I'm dealing with that a lot right now. So that, that's big yeah. for me. Thank you. Yeah. What's going on? I just am taking myself too seriously and, yeah. and not, um, I, I feel like I'm missing out on some of the, um, kind of, family's important like that that's the most important thing and i and i feel like i lately don't have i'm not creating enough time because i'm so focused on making what i want to make happen and i'm taking myself too seriously and it's like if you if i were to put <clears throat> if i were to put a thousand pounds of force to something that can only move at five miles an hour or i could put 200 pounds of force and it's still only going to move at five miles per hour i'm caught up in giving it the thousand pounds, trying Ooh. to speed it up. And it just has to take its own time. But I, that, that really speaks to me. Cause I, am, but I, but I think if you do, yeah, man, I mean like just, yeah. I mean the, the force you're putting into it mm -hmm. isn't going to make it move any faster. Right. Right. It's just, it's the, it's the idea that you're, you're putting the force behind it. Right. And it's not going to move in the way that you want it to necessarily in that time. Yeah. And just, and, and I keep reminding myself this, but you know, when, when you get to where you want to go, you look back and realize that the journey was the fun part. And when you get there, it's like, well, I'm, I'm happy I'm here, but I'm trying to skip through the process and I, I need to enjoy right. the process. Yeah, I that's that's it, man. That's that's the key to everything. Mm -hmm. You nailed it. Well, well thank you. I, I didn't expect that. Uh, I didn't expect that to happen. So, uh, yeah, thanks for bearing with me. And that kind of leads me into another question um, that obviously is going to serve me. But if you uh, if you were to speak to your eighteen year old self, your twenty eight year year old self your 38 year old self and your 48 year old self. So each decade that you go looking back and knowing what you know, what advice would you give them? That's a, That's an interesting one. Cause those are the, the years of your, your graduation and then like your 10 year reunion, your 20 and 30, right. Mm -hmm. Um, ish. Right. So mm -hmm. like, I think, um, to my 18 year old self, I would be like, don't sell yourself short. Like I, I, cause I was, I felt like we, we talked about earlier, I felt beaten down by school and all that stuff. And I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't confident enough 
to even like I, I had to learn it. I had to I had to learn how to learn in order to be confident in what I could actually do. <laughs> so don't sell yourself short. And then like and then honestly at twenty eight <laughs> it would be you ain't all that. <laughs> so you like you flip it around, but it's the truth. Like, man, I I I really felt like I was hot shit at twenty eight, and I wasn't yet. And I really wanted to make. It's just like you were talking about. I was trying to push all this stuff, you know. Like I just get out of my way. I'm I'm going to these places, you know. Um. And then I feel like at 38, you're sort of in where the, you know, maybe you had a, an idea that you were going to end up way up there, you know, <laughs> and then, then the reality has sort of set in like where the parameters actually are. And maybe you are going to still get that moonshot, but it just hasn't quite, you know, materialized. But generally, I think you're getting a sense of where you are right and then by 48 that's it's fairly settled right and and you got to just figure out how to be happy with that you know mm -hmm. like th this is this is kind of what it is and and um you know i i did the best i could and um and to be okay with that mm -hmm. um but what I tell my kids a lot and, and I, and I, with my daughter, like, I'm, I'm so, I'm so proud of this kid. Like, um, I, I, I've said it so many times to them and, and it's, and it's part of what we were just talking about. Enjoy the process, but it's really about find your passion, like, you know, and find your passion. Um, and and if you enjoy the work because like we spend so much of our life working mm -hmm. right and i don't know what the statistics show but i would guess 70 percent maybe even more of us work and we hate it we hate what we do we do it because we have to do it and we have to pay a bill and whatever but if you can find that passion and you can go to work doing that. It's always and at a point it's going to be work. Like I've I've talked with rock stars and I've talked with you know very famous actors, and and they, they will tell me the same thing. Like at a point it's work. You got to go to work. Yeah. But what is the work? And 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 do you enjoy that work? Like mm -hmm. if that if you if you enjoy that work, I think you won, honestly. So so if you find your passion. And, and, you know, you, you work at that. It's not as much work as somebody that's going to work, you know, doing something they hate every day. Right. So we do way too much of that. Right. I yeah. think it, no, I, don't, I, I articulated that poorly, but, but there, there's a good message in there. No, no, no. I agree. And anything that you're, anything you're passionate about, eventually, like you said, an actor, I would have, I could, would have cut off my left leg to be an actor when I was young, but the actor, once you get through the thrills of it, it's absolutely, it's a job. And Total you work. Have to I mean, it's, it's, it. it's, a, it's a tremendous, I mean, acting is a tremendous amount of work. Like people think, oh, you're just going up on stage and you're pretending to be somebody else. No, you're not. 
you would not believe the research and 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 work that goes into that and and it's not work like you know you're going over a spreadsheet it's it's like emotional it's hard it's hard to become somebody else um and and so like don't don't kid yourself and the rock star that goes out there and he's got to perform every night yeah, he's got to do that again tomorrow and the next day. And then right. he's got, you know, two days after that and he's a thousand miles away. And he's away from it's work, yeah. right? I mean, it doesn't matter how fun that is, it's still work and you gotta go do the work. And we all do. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. So, um, but if you find the passion, the work becomes tolerable. Yeah, and for that, um, you know, like for that rock star, for that actor or any performer, that is you also have the pressures of delivery. So you, every night, yeah. every city, you need to give yeah. the best show you've ever given. And if one person there didn't like it, now they have this tool and they can say, you know, right. they can say, which I'll tra uh, transition into this, um, you know, last night saw, saw Dead & Co, they sucked. You know, and it's like, what? That was great. One person didn't love it. Um, and that brings me to how did you, and I promise we're wrapping up here, but how did you get, how did you get so uh, involved with the Grateful Dead? Oh, the Grateful Dead. Um, well, I uh, stumbled into it. So I was, I, I was uh, hanging out with a bunch of degenerates in um, 19, you know, the 1980s when I was, I was kind of in the middle of that, you know, I, I flunked out of college and I came back home and I knew of the Grateful Dead, but I didn't know anything about them. And then some, some guys that I got, I got to know actually at Houghton Beach in Kirkland, um, they were Bellevue high school guys. I was a Lake Washington high school guy and we were, you know, we called it unemployment beach and, and there we were. And, um, and these guys, you know, they, they were fun to hang out with and stuff, but they were all into the Grateful Dead and I didn't know anything about them, but they, uh, took me to my first dead show in 87, 1987. Um, and I didn't get it. I still, I, I didn't get it then. And then I went to another one in 88. And I was starting, it was just the vibe of the thing. And then I started listening to some of their recorded stuff, not their live stuff. And um, it was American Beauty that really turned me on to them. And, and that album, and then In the Dark, the, the 87 album that they released, The Touch of Grey, you know, like they, they used to call us touch heads. Um, and, um, that so that was like the, the one hit that they ever had. Um, but it was from there that I really started to understand like what it was about. It's about community, you know, it was about, um, you know, uh, it that's what it was always about from 65 on, like, um, just the community and the vibe at the concert. Mm -hmm. And what I found, uh, really cool with the dead and company thing with John Mayer, um, like. I, John Mayer's good pop music, don't want to disparage the guy, but once he joined the, you know, Bobby and, and was doing the Dead and Company thing, I was like, well, I'll never go watch another Dead shit, not with that guy. Um, but then I watched a YouTube video of them playing, and this was early, like 2017 or something, and, and I was like, wow, like, you know, Jerry would approve of this, like, this is cool. And then I got back on the wagon, and I'm like, now I'm traveling to shows again to go see these guys. And it was so great. But the best part is that this is what they were always about. It was about like the music will live on. A lot of their music is, you know, 
100 years old. Um, you know, a lot of it they, they wrote and, and produced themselves, but like a lot of it are just old folk tunes that they repurposed and just, you know, oh, I didn't know kept, that. kept it going on. So now, oh, and here cool. we are, you know, now we're five generations in and you got, you know, um, you know, these kids coming in, you know, digging on it. And I saw this shirt of this kid at the Gord show and it said, it said, John is my Jerry. And, oh, I, and I, that's cool. That's, that's cool. That's what it's all about. You know, like, cool. like just paying it forward, just, yeah. just keeping it going. And that, that to me is what the Grateful Dead's all about, but. I, I love that. I, I was always curious what the what the background was and, and how you got involved in that, because uh, you are you'd consider yourself a, a deadhead, right? I am a deadhead. Yeah. OK. OK. Well, thank you for sharing that in my last quick rapid fire questions and take as long as you want on them. But um, this might be a difficult one. But what, what's your greatest success to date? What? <laughs> greatest success to date? I think raising. Uh, two reasonably functional kids i'm i'm very i'm super proud of my kids that's that's a good answer i, I had a feeling you were going to go that way okay so, yeah, so being, being i am I'm, I'm over the moon i'm actually heading to spokane to go hang out with my son we're going to the coop game this weekend oh yeah well, enjoy, yeah, enjoy it enjoy your time out there it's been a long Pack time two championship it's Oh, is that what it's now? Is it Pac-2 now? Well, no, it's Oregon, oh, okay. it's Oregon State say. and Washington State, the last two yeah. in the Pac-12. So my friends making these t-shirts say Pac-2 Pac championship. Oh, that's that's awesome. Um, and what would be, so you said you read a lot. What would be, um, what is your most gifted book? Um, a, a book that you recommend that that people read most often? So the book I've I've gifted the most is Isaac Storm. Um, it's by uh, Eric Larson, a uh, local author who writes um, it's um, it's historical nonfiction, but it's it's uh, written in a in a way that that tells a, a really compelling story based off of documents and uh, memoirs and stuff. Um, I'm, I'm a, I don't, I don't really read nonfiction or I don't really read fiction. I, I, I only and read nonfiction I. and I, I don't know why that is. I, I really don't. Um, I just, I, I love plays. I love films and, um, I don't, I don't know what, what that is about me, but I don't really get into fiction books anymore. Mm -hmm. So these, but these, uh, nonfiction books, um, really speak to me. I, I, I like the, the, uh, the journalistic process these authors go to and, um, and Larson is, is a master. I will, uh, <clears throat> I'll check that out. And, and I don't read fiction. Books it's, about the, it's about the 1900, uh, Galveston hurricane. Okay. And the guy who was the head of the national uh, meteorological, uh, uh, society out of Galveston at that time and, and how he missed, uh, miscalled that, that that storm and uh, killed a lot of people. It's horrible. I will, but a great, but a great book. I, I will for sure read it, and I'll, I'll let you know my thoughts. And my last question is: What is a belief, if there's any, that you used to strongly hold on to, but you've changed your mind about? Um. 
Well, I think um, I don't. I don't know if it's like a a cohesive thought, but like before I had cancer, mm -hmm. I was a hypochondriac, and then when I got cancer, I became somewhat of a nihilist, and so. I don't give as much of a shit anymore. Um, I, it, 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 it loosened me up a lot. And I, and I, and I think that there's definitely some downside to that, but I, I, I think there's some real upside to that too. Like I, I was, there's like, more upside. Yeah, maybe I, I, I definitely, I, I take things a lot less seriously. Mm -hmm. than I did. And I don't, I don't know if that's a, a good or a bad thing, but, um, I, I, I used to, like we were talking about earlier, I, I used to take myself way too seriously mm -hmm. and I stopped doing that. I've also stopped, I've also stopped, uh, doing so much social media, um, which I, I think maybe is, is, is part or partial of that. And mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't know, but like, I, I used to get really hung up on social media and how I presented myself on social media. And I just basically stopped doing it. And I, and I find that somehow I'm, I'm a little bit happier. I don't, I don't know if social media is serving us in this world anymore. Um, I, I could go on and on about this. I think that there are, there are pros and cons. I think the cons outweigh the pros, but it's all relative to the situation. I think that if, if someone's extremely lonely and maybe they're isolated somewhere, social media could be the thing that keeps them going where it would be better. It would be better if they were to get into a community, but not everybody has that access. And right. you know, sometimes I think about people that are away at the military and I can't imagine what that would have been like in the sixties versus now and still being connected. And maybe it's not a good thing, but, but as a whole, social media is, bullshit. It's not good for you. You're comparing yourself constantly. You're getting high. You are, this is science. You're getting high on likes. It's like pulling a slot machine. And yep. then if you put something up and you don't get the same amount of likes as the last time you look inward, what did I do wrong? What, what I, should I take this post down? So right. uh, yeah, I think that social media is, uh, when and the feedback that you get, you know, like, like, like people, you know, did the, the engagement or yeah. whatever. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a slippery slope, man. Like we it, used it to is. literally get grades on that stuff uh, in in my business, and and I really slowly backed out of it. Um, and and I've and and now they you know are, are you know th th there's there's a push to you know get engaged in in some way, and I'm 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 kind of struggling with it to be honest with you. But maybe it's because I'm an old guy now, and I don't I don't feel like I really. I, I, I don't, I don't know if it's, you know, the ends justify the means. I don't know. If it makes you feel any better. I'm, I don't think you're an old guy. I'm 36. I don't think it's good either. And I'm trying to engage in it less and less. So, uh, for what that's worth. And, um, that's it for today. So, Thank you. We made it through. I am so appreciative. <laughs> I'm so appreciative of you taking the time to do this with me. It means more to me than you know. And um, I, I can for sure say without a doubt, my this podcast moving forward will be this much better because the amount 
the amount of detail I had to put into making sure that I knew what I was talking about with you. So thank you for being such an amazing person. Thank you for having so much out there that people can look up to. You're a huge figure in the Pacific Northwest, definitely the Seattle area. You volunteer with great organizations. Everybody in sports knows you. So this is, this is a huge moment for me. It's a milestone for me and I am just very grateful. So thank you. Well, thank you, Derek. You're the man. Appreciate you, man. Yeah, well, I appreciate you. And um, until the next time, if anyone, oh, and I never say this, if anyone has questions for me or for Bill, it can, you can find me at info at constructingsuccess.fm. And as we were just talking shit about social media, if you want to find Bill, it's Bill, <laughs> B-I-L-L, Wixie, W-I-X-E-Y. And he's very easy to find on LinkedIn. Very easy to find because I found him immediately. Uh, LinkedIn, Instagram. I don't have Facebook, but uh, you can get in touch with him through me or you can get in touch with him directly. So, Bill, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Derek. Cheers, man. Thank you.